So as I like to do every, every week, just a brief recap. Week one, we looked at Western thought over the past several hundred years, particularly as it relates to understanding Christ, who Jesus is, just like in Matthew 16 when he asked the the disciples of the question, or the question of the disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? We looked at what has been said of Jesus and our understanding of knowledge uh, over the past uh, 400 years or so. Week two, or then we, we moved to hermeneutical issues, how to rightly interpret the Bible, because scriptures are God's revelation of himself, and ultimately... Uh, the Word, uh, who became flesh. Week two, uh, we looked, um, what did we do in week two? Week two, we did uh, biblical storyline. Biblical storyline, Genesis to Revelation, uh, particularly focusing on the Old Testament. We talked about types, uh, biblical topology, promise fulfillment. Week three, we, I believe we looked at the deity of Christ. Uh, week four, we looked at the humanity of Christ, and week five, we are going to, with the early church, uh, work through how to rightly synthesize all of this data that we have. So, we have, we've made it clear, I think, over the past several weeks, uh, that Scripture, without any ambiguity presents Jesus as the divine Son of God. And without any question, the Scriptures present Jesus as true and fully man. And so we say yes and amen to that. But then lots and lots of questions arise from those realities. Uh, and so for... This evening, in week five, we'll be looking at the first, like, 500 years or so of the early church, in particular, two or three major creeds uh, that uh, the early church was um, so helpful by God's grace uh, in formulating for our good. Uh, the first would be Nicaea, and the second would be Chalcedon. All right, so on your study guide, you will see, okay, first off, just so that level set expectations, okay? The past few weeks, first week it was like, okay, this is some, this is some philosophy, okay? This is some, this is some deep thinking. Um, week two was like, this is fun, looking at Old, Old Testament storyline, seeing how it finds its fulfillment in Christ, yes. Uh, deity of Christ, Really helpful, humanity of Christ. We're just looking at the, at the text of Scripture, particularly the Gospels. Uh, this week, it's, it's going to be more than probably week one. Uh, it's going to be a lot of early church putting together ideas and terminology to go with those biblical ideas. Uh, and so, if, if we have any questions, like I don't want to lose anybody... So if you have a question, let us know. Chandler has the, the handheld so that uh, the ones and ones of people who are listening to the podcast can, can hear the question uh, in that, if you say it through the mic. Um, but there's, gonna be, there's just going to be a lot of phil uh, philosophy and, and, and theological language, all right?
So that's up front. That's not my fault. <laughs> it's not my fault. Okay. I was not there. Okay. So uh, on your study guide, number one, uh, many, if not all, of the creeds in church history have been produced as a response to heresy. Many, if not all, of the creeds in church history have been produced as a response to heresy. That was true in uh, the 4th century uh, with the Nicene Creed. That was true in the 5th century with Chalcedon. Uh, It continued to be true in the 6th and 7th centuries with at least another four um, creeds. It was true in the Reformation, where we have a lot of creeds and catechisms. And we see it today, uh, the past 30, 40 years, with the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Uh, We see it with the Danvers Statement, as it relates to male-female relations, and the Nashville Statement, as it relates to human sexuality. Uh, Consistently, over over time, since the, the birth... Uh, of the church at at Pentecost, the church has had to respond to a variety of either questions or uh, misunderstandings or just outright heresy. And so in the first 500 years, you're going to see some major, major heresy. Uh, And it is all around doctrine of God and doctrine of Christ. Um. And we cannot talk uh, about doctrine of Christ without talking about doctrine of God. And you can't talk about doctrine of God without also having a right understanding of the doctrine of Christ and Christology. Uh, So this is not new. This will continue to be the case, I'm sure, uh, until Christ returns. And with, with these church creeds, they have been very, very helpful in articulating with with greater precision and specificity the truths that the Bible that the Bible teaches us uh, from age to age depending on what kind of heresy you're dealing with whether it's Trinitarian heresies Christological heresies whether it's issues over uh, does Christ have one will or two wills over the issue of justification by faith alone um, or today's issues with image of God um, and the doctrine of Scripture. So, uh, under number two, early heresies that required a response. Uh, A couple of them we've already talked about uh, in the past, a couple of weeks, few weeks. Uh, The first, the first is Ebionism. And a lot of these heresies are uh, tied to like the major proponents or the original thinkers. Uh, Ebionism. So this is this is uh, a heresy that's that's largely tied to uh, Judaism. And so we can uh, we can expect within the first two to three hundred years of the Christian faith, as Paul and the apostles in the first century have gone into synagogues 
proclaimed the resurrection and Christ crucified uh, that we see in the book of Acts there's, there's a response from the Jews, regardless of the city. Some believe and a lot oppose them. And so in the uh, 3rd, 4th century, uh, we see this Ebionism heresy arise, and, and that is a denial of the deity of Jesus. So coming out of Judaism, uh, these, these people were strongly monotheistic, and so, which means there's only one God, and all Christians say, yes, amen, there is only one God. Um, and as we'll see with, with some heresies uh, in the next hour, hour and 15 minutes, um, there, was a, there was a failure to understand that Jesus could be God and man, truly and fully. Um, and so Ebionism was the, was the first heresy, and this was an early form of adoptionism. Okay, uh, another, another term, and I'm not going to write these in the Greek, despite Robin's desires and protestations. All right, Ebionism, Ebionism, early form of adoptionism. Okay, what, 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 do, what do I mean by adoptionism? Okay, so the, the Ebionites would have been strongly, strongly um, inclined to argue that there was one God, and since there was one God, Jesus could not be God because then there would be two gods. Um, and so, Jesus, the, uh, who called himself the Son, what happened was that he was just an ordinary guy uh, who didn't possess any supernatural giftings or anything like that, but he might have had some unusual talents and, and wisdom as it relates to the scriptures. Uh, but he's just an ordinary guy, born of Joseph and Mary, the natural way, no virgin birth or anything like that. And then at the time of his baptism, that's when the Logos, or Christ, descended upon him. And so from his baptism on, he was adopted by God to accomplish the mission that you see unfold in the Gospels. And so, God's presence and power are real because the Logos, which in, in the Greek is word, uh, the Logos descends upon Christ at his baptism, or the Spirit. I mean, they wouldn't say the Spirit because they're going to deny the Trinity. Uh, but the Christ descends upon uh, Jesus at his baptism. You see God's presence and power clearly in the life uh, in ministry of Jesus for the three years in the Gospels. And then on the cross, you see Christ removed, and that's where you, you hear Jesus crying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this, this in some ways, is like fairly, um, fairly similar to Islam. So Christ is a great prophet. He was definitely not the Son of God. Uh, definitely didn't die for sins as a substitute. So Ebionism and adoptionism, um, Jesus wasn't divine. The Christ came on him, but then at his baptism, then it was removed at his death. Um, and that is, a, that is a common heresy 
in the first few hundreds of years of the church, in large part because of a misunderstanding of monotheism. Um, all right, and then two that we talked about, docetism. Anybody remember what that is? Docetism. From the Greek, dokeo. What is it? It means to appear. So docetism was uh, Jesus. Uh, Jesus only appeared to be man, but he wasn't really man. And so you have a a, a denial of the humanity of Christ with docetism. And then the third, we're not going to go into these because we've already talked about them extensively, and we'll, we'll talk about some of them a little bit more detail as we get into the creeds. Uh, the third was Arianism. All right, modern day who? Modern day Jehovah's Witnesses. So Arius, the father of Arianism, he was arguing that Jesus was the firstborn of creation. He was the first created, the son was the first created being. He was not very God of very God. So do we remember the Greek terminology? Because we're going to talk about it with the Nicene Creed. Or what? Okay, all right. So you've got... Homie, 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 homie. Okay, so, literally, literally, literally a diphthong, okay, a diphthong, uh, it's only one letter, only one letter and you're a heretic, okay, all right, homoousius, homoousius, and we're going to talk about ousius tonight, uh, homoousius, same nature, Homoousius, similar nature. All right, so we've got same, and then we've got similar. What do you think the Arians argued? The son was similar, but he was not the same as the father. Whereas the early church is saying, no, 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 no. The father and the son are the same. They share the same nature. Okay? At Nicaea, at Nicaea, you only see this particular issue, same nature, being addressed in the relationship between the Father and the Son. Yeah, I could tell. So, Nicaea, this issue right here, same versus similar natures, is, is really only about the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Spirit is actually not in the Nicene Creed. But then, about 60 years later, in the First Council of Constantinople, the same debate comes up with, well, is the Spirit, is the Holy Spirit, same or similar? 
Okay, and so in the fourth century, that's where we then have a very, very clear explanation of the biblical texts, the biblical warrant for the Trinity is then outlined with very, very, very helpful theological language. Um, so, Ebionism, which is an early form of adoptionism. We have Docetism, we have Arianism. All right, so number three. These are the heresies that are leading up to the beginning of the fourth century. Okay? So, before we get to Chalcedon, the Chalcedonian Creed, which is primarily aimed at the doctrine of Christ, you first have Nicaea. So the road to Chalcedon begins at Nicaea. Nicaea. Hold on. The road to Chalcedon begins at Nicaea in 325 A.D. 325 A.D. We have the, the first church council. All right, now in, in, in week one, what did, what did we talk about in terms of warrant? Do you remember? It was a big word that we all laughed about for like two weeks. Okay, what is our something warrant? Epistemological. Epistemological. What is the warrant for us understanding or knowing what we know? Okay, in the first week we argued over the past four or five hundred years of Western thought, it has been human reason. Okay, human reason, rationality is, is the foundation for epistemology or, or the understanding of knowledge and, and what have you, uh, or theory of knowledge. Whereas prior to that, what was the West? It was grounded upon revelation, not human reason. God had revealed himself through the scriptures so that we can know him and rightly see ourselves and know ourselves and one another. Well, what we're going to talk about this, this week and uh, is helpful in the reading is we're going to see under 3, 3-1, three, the importance of ecclesiological warrant. Ecclesiological warrant. What does that mean? Church. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. Where does that come from? The, the word in the Greek for, for assembly or church is ecclesia. So ecclesiological warrant. The importance of ecclesiological warrant. So what do, what do I mean by that? It's really, really important for us to rightly understand the Bible. And that's foundational. Sola Scriptura. Okay? Scripture is the final authority for all matters pertaining to faith. Right? Amen. But do we read the Bible ourselves as the modernists or... Uh, the folks in the Enlightenment would say, like in unbiased, in an unbiased way, can we read it according to reason and, and rightly discern what the Bible's saying always? 
Right. Yeah, what has postmodernism taught us, if anything else? We, we all come to the text biased. Right? We're all uncultured people. We shape the world through our language and our thoughts and our own... Um, what's the word? Um, ethnocentrism. We, we see the world through our own particular culture and we can't help but see it. It's not necessarily wrong. It is what it is. Uh, so, the importance of ecclesiological warrant. So, the creeds are not as authoritative as Scripture. But they are authoritative. So, sola scriptura doesn't mean that, that Scripture is the only authority. It just means that it's the ultimate and final authority. Okay? The... the the church, the history of the church, is authoritative. Uh, and it should be authoritative. It should help us to see and shape the way, or see the scriptures and to shape the, w- the way that we see Christ. It's not the final authority, because if there is any part of a creed that doesn't accurately reflect what scripture teaches, then we dismiss that portion of the creed. But any portion of a creed that rightly, uh, rightly unfolds for us doctrine that the scripture teaches we can affirm that primarily because it's just simply teaching what scripture is teaching does that make sense so ecclesiological warrant it's okay uh hypothetically speaking for us to say you know what i've got issues with uh this particular church creed um and then to say and here's the biblical argument for why? Uh, I, I would argue that if you have a problem with Nice the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian Creed, uh, you have a problem with biblical Christianity. So these early church creeds, I don't know that they could articulate biblical truths better than they did. And so if we're going to deny Chalcedon or we're going to deny the truths that Ni- the Nicene Creed teaches... We need to do that very, very carefully because there's a whole lot of people who have come before us, right, and argued these things from the text. So the importance of ecclesiological warrant, or that that is the need for historical theology. It's really important that we understand what the church has, has historically taught and affirmed, okay? Because let me, let me just tell you, let me tell you, if you tell me, if you tell me that, that God gave you 12 plates out in Utah, and it's contrary to all the creeds that have come before us and that are clearly articulating Scripture, I'm, I'm not going to believe you, okay? I mean, the thing that they taught us in, they, they taught us in the PhD program in, at Southern was that, hey, it's, it's okay if you're addressing a topic that someone has already addressed in the past. We're really concerned when you have something radically new to say. Okay? Because when you're radically new, you're probably a heretic. Okay? So there is a, there is a great need for us to understand uh, what the church has historically said. And, that, and that's the, the study of historical theology. We... 
we as, as a local church would not be where we are if it were not for the reformers. Taking a stand for what Scripture says about how we are justified before God. Okay? So, no one, 311, no one approaches Christology de novo. Okay, I couldn't figure out a different way to say it, so don't, don't fuss about it. De novo are like totally new. Okay? No one approaches Christology totally new. And if you're trying to do that, again, you are probably a heretic. All right? You cannot approach the text in an unbiased fashion. You have hundreds of years of thought, whether you are aware of it or not, that has shaped the way that you view the Scriptures and that you view Jesus. Okay, so if we're going to do something that's contrary to what the church has historically said for 2,000 years, or for 1,500 years, or for 1,000 years, we need to be really careful and really slow to move. Um, so in the early church, with Arianism and Ebionism, and even into the 19th century with the German theological liberals that we talked about in week one, um, there, was, there was the charge against the early church uh, that the, the early church had basically Hellenized or Platonized Christianity. And what that means was the, the teaching that the church had pumped out in the first several hundred years, it wasn't really an accurate representation of what the Gospels and the New Testament teach. It's more of an indication of how much they had been influenced by Greek philosophy. So the question, hundreds of years ago, 1,700 years ago, was, is Christianity early church, are they guilty of acute Hellenization? And the answer is no. Okay, this is, and this is where um, I think on the back of your, uh, nope, no, nah, I took it out. Uh, last week and the week before, there's a book by a guy named Richard Baucom, Jesus and the God of Israel. Excellent, excellent book, if, if you want to pick that up. And Baucom, along with the rest of the history of the church, is showing that the idea that Jesus being divine is in no way uh, in contrast with, with the Jewish faith of the Old Testament. Like, clearly, Old Testament expectations would, that, would be that Yahweh would come and save his people. And he helps to work through that and to dispute the idea that the church had been heavily, heavily influenced by, by Greek philosophy. Um, and that, that is still, I mean, still people today arguing that. Still people. And, and at the end of the day, it is often an attempt to redefine who God is, to reject the Trinity, or to redefine who Jesus is, either to say, typically, that He is not divine. So, like, this, these, these are serious issues, and these are serious issues that you're going to talk to with people on the street. Jesus, well, Jesus wasn't really divine. He was a really good teacher. That, 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 is, a, that is a Christological commitment, okay? And we, and we need to be able to have answers to that. Um, all right, so in Nicaea, in 325, 3-2, 
what is so, so very important for our discussion, very important for our faith, but very, very important for our discussion this evening, is in 3.2, you see Nicaea clearly uh, explain person-nature distinctions. Person-nature distinctions. Okay. And that's where we're going to spend a whole lot of time. Basically, the rest of our evening, we're going to be talking about person-nature distinctions in Nicaea and Chalcedon. And then, next week, we're going to look at the, the 1,500 years after Chalcedon to work through hypostatic union, communication of attributes, all these issues that kept popping up over the course of church history. So, person nature. All right, so this is a little bit of, um, it's a little anachronistic because it's, this wasn't being used prior to, to Nicaea, but when, when we are looking at the biblical data as it relates to Jesus, okay, you've got three, three, uh, three major issues, okay? The first is who is the active subject of the incarnation? Who, who is the active subject? Who, who is it? Who is the I there? Okay, so the Bible clearly teaches that it's the Son. It's the Son. The Son is the active subject. But they didn't have the language of person yet. They, didn't, they had not articulated clearly active subject or any of these things. So in all of these heresies, there, there are different ideas of, okay, well, who is Jesus? Who is he? When he, say, when he says, before Abraham was, I am, who's talking? Yes. Secondly, so we, we clearly have, we clearly have, uh, yeah, mm-hmm, 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 yep, yep, I, I don't want to sound ridiculous, yes, yes, thank you, Robin, Robin will serve us as tribute, all right, so person, clearly Jesus is somebody and we need to be able to have the language to rightly understand and to unfold these issues so like is he is he one person or two people does he have a blended nature or two natures does he have one will or two wills these are all issues that are popping up over the first several hundred years of the church Okay, if he only has one will, what does, that, what does that mean about the Trinity? Do they have three wills? If he only has one will and it's the divine will, how in the world can he redeem my fallen sinful will? All, like, Scripture is Scripture. It's God's revelation. But then when it starts pressing into culture and questions start getting asked, 
all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's a, that's a really good question. We need to think about that. Like today, is it right to see people as heterosexual or homosexual? I don't even think that language is helpful. Scripture tells us, no, you're made in God's image. Well, what does that mean? What male and female? Like, it seems really simple, but clearly it's not. And so the church has to speak clearly about what the, what the Scriptures are teaching. So we, clearly it is somebody doing something in the Gospels, okay? They're going to they're gonna come up with the language of person, okay? Secondly, we know, we know there's divinity, okay? We spent a couple of, you know, a couple weeks back, we spent a lot of time looking at the deity of Christ, the divine or the divine nature. And then we also know that there is an issue around the humanity of Christ. And so we we spent we spent a few weeks looking at the biblical data, looking at the storyline. Yahweh's going to save us, but it's going to be the Davidic king. The Messiah is going to be Israel. He's going to be the last Adam, or he's going to be a new Adam. Like, how in the world do we synthesize those things together? How, how, how does it work with, with Jesus having divine and human nature? How can he be ignorant of certain things and then still know all things? How can he uphold the universe by the word of his power and be held as a baby? How can he be hungry and not hungry? How can he be tired and yet never sleep? Like, these are all issues. And so, the Bible doesn't necessarily fill all of those details out for us. And so, what the early church is doing is they are using non-biblical terminology to describe biblical ideas. Okay? So, when you open your Bible, you're not going to find the word Trinity. But you're going to find the Trinity everywhere. Why? Because the concept of the Trinity, which was formulated clearly with helpful, helpful term- terminology at Nicaea at 325 AD, like that helps us to understand Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can, how can God be Father, Son, Holy Spirit and, and be one God? How is that not three gods? And so the early church is taking biblical data and they're trying to, to use non-biblical language to help us to hold fast to sound doctrine. Does that make sense? And so this is, again, this is just historical theology. So, with the divine nature, what was the the heresy that we've already seen attack the, the divinity of Christ? Arianism, yeah, I mean, Ebionism is another one, but the big one, the big one is Arianism, right? He's, he's not God, he's not Yahweh, all right? So the early church has got to look at his divine nature and say, we, we've got to figure out a way to formulate this and, and give a response to Arius and all of his followers because, like, they, they 
Arianism almost overthrew the church in the first few hundred years after Christ. And what was, what was, the, what was the heresy that denied the humanity of Christ that we talked about? That one. Docetism. That's right. He, he, just, he just appeared to be a man. He, it was, he was God. He just appeared to be a man. But he really wasn't. Well, if he only appeared to be a man, then we only have something that appears to be a salvation that isn't really salvation. Right? So, what we, knew, what we need, right, is... Um, In formulating these things, we, we've got to, okay, it's the Son, the Son, he, he calls himself the Son, John says he's the Word. Okay, that's him. How in the world do we talk about him? Rightly. Okay, divinity. I mean, we, we clearly see that he is God the Son, or the Son of God. That's all over the New Testament. But how in the world does that relate to what he does as the active subject? And how in the world does that relate to the fact that he is God the Son incarnate? And so the church at Nicaeus is working through these kinds of issues... And they're going to, uh, going to take Greek language to help us understand these realities. So, 3-3. Three, three. Okay, 3-2-1-1. Three, one, one. Person. 3-2-1-2. Three, two, two. Divinity. 3-2-1-3. Three, three. Humanity. Okay, 3-3. Three, three. Theological language needed to communicate person-nature distinctions. All right, so with humanity, it's easy for us to say, well, yeah, I mean, the Son was human. What does that mean uh, the Word became flesh? Does that mean he, He's got skin and bones? What else does that mean? Does He have a soul? Is it body, soul, spirit? All these kinds of debates, what does it mean to be human? Because we've got to affirm that for Jesus in order for him to be our Savior, right? And so, there are two primary realities that the early church at Nicaea are trying to hammer, hammer, hammer away. Okay? Alright, so the first is... Alright, as it relates to understanding God... Clearly, the Bible teaches oneness. The Father and Son are one. What in the world does that mean? How in the world are we supposed to understand that? Oneness. Okay. And so what, what at Nicaea, the early church terminology uses to describe the idea of oneness my father and I are one, is nature. Okay? Now, obviously, that's in the English. 
so they didn't, they didn't actually use nature. But to communicate the oneness of God, the idea of nature or being or essence is being used to describe how God can be one Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? So in the, in the Greek, this terminology, you're going to have ousia, okay? Nature. Well, the church is pretty quickly transitioning to Latin, right? In the early church? Okay, all right. Uh, just wanted to make sure everybody was with me. And they're going, because, because this is the language of the Bible, ousia, okay? That's the Greek word. Well, anytime you move to a new language, there are ambiguities, interpretations, and in translation. And so in Latin, we're going to have essentia, okay, which I hope that you understand is like comes over into Latin is, is our base language. And so that's where we're getting essence, okay? Essence is meant to communicate oneness in the Godhead, all right? So, again, if there's a divider between orthodoxy and heresy, as it relates to this, usia, nature, over here you've got homo, and over here you've got homoi. Okay? Same. Similar. Okay? The, the early church at Nicaea, uh, Nicaea is saying, no, the Father and the Son have the same nature, the same being, the same essence. Homoousius. The Arians are saying, no, no, Jesus is similar, the Son is similar, He is not the same. He is the firstborn of creation. He's the first created being. He's a lesser deity. He's similar, but He is not the same. Otherwise, you lose one God. And what the Nicene Creed is going to say is, no, you can have oneness even as you have a triune God. And so they're trying to figure out the language to communicate these biblical realities. So when we talk about, when we talk about nature, when we talk about nature, What the, the, the question that we are trying to answer is, what is a thing? So when you think about nature, the early church is wanting you to understand that when we, we hear nature, as we're looking at the scriptures, 
they want you to understand that nature describes what? What something is. What is its essence? What is its substance? All right? So, when we, when we ask the question, what is God? What is God? What is God? God is a spirit. Okay. So, when you just described what God was, and you said God is a spirit, which is absolutely correct. What is that? What, what, is, the, what is the idea that God is a spirit? Or the idea that God is omnipotent? Or the idea that God is omnipresent or omniscient? What are, what, what are those ideas? Attributes, right? You're just going to say words? Yes. All right. So what is God is answered by you telling me about his attributes. What is God? God is love. God is eternal. God is spirit. God is omnipotent. Now, as we think about attributes, this is really important. Is God, is God made up of those parts? Piece together, and you have God? That's, that's a, I love the fervency of the no. Yes. No, so when we argue for divine simplicity, which is an attribute of God, simplicity, we're arguing that God is, is not a composite. He's not made up of a bunch of different things. Because if you can take God apart, then there's something more basic than Him. Something more foundational than Him. So divine simplicity is just saying God is a simple being. That doesn't mean that he's simple as in that he's, he's dumb or anything like that. It's that he is not made of parts. He's not a composite. And so when we talk about what is God, God is all these attributes. And so when we're talking about the nature of something, we are describing what that thing is. Right? What is Chandler? Chandler is human. She, she's body and spirit. I'm describing to you attributes. She is, oh, this is a wonderful opportunity. She is, I, we're just going to say she's a gift. We're, we're only going to, we're just going to stick with gift because this is, this is recorded. This is recorded. I can't have any evidence of any any disqualifications no i was i was thinking about thinking about negative attributes right yeah yeah Yeah, or that or that okay all right so nature nature answered the question what something is what is a thing okay all right so nicaea is trying to articulate and defend the idea, the biblical idea, the reality that God is one. Deuteronomy 6, God is one. Okay? But then, they can't just defend oneness. 
Because if you defend oneness and you don't rightly articulate the relationships between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, at least as it relates to Jesus, you're going to go to Arianism. Or you're going to go to adoptionism. Or something, something like that. These early church heresies are getting it wrong. Okay, So they have got to defend oneness. But they also have to defend, this is another blank in your study guide, threeness. So if we, get wrong, if we get oneness wrong, we end up with polytheism, right? Because we're like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, okay, three gods. Well, no, 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 no. They're one God. They're one God. Oh, okay, they're one God. So in the Old Testament, it was the Father. In the Gospels, it was the Son. And then in the, in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament in the age of the church, it's the Spirit, right? No, that's modalism. That's Sabellianism. That is heresy. Okay? That, Patrick. No, 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 no. So if we fail to show distinctions, threeness, you're going to have modalism. Okay? Oneness Pentecostalism. All right, T.D. Jakes. Modalism. That's heresy. You don't have the God of the Bible. Okay? Who is Jesus praying to when he prays to the Father? Who is he breathing out when he's breathing under the disciples? The Spirit. The Spirit almost becomes like a force rather than a person. But if we, if we fail to show, if we fail to show that these three persons work inseparably as one, then we're going to run into the issue of multiple gods. Okay? So this is Nicaea just trying to figure all of these things out for our benefit. That makes sense? So, with threeness, okay, what we are going to be talking about is we're going to be talking about distinctions. Distinctions in personal relations. So Nicaea is going to say, okay, the Son is very God of very God. The Father is very God of very God. Okay? And they're going to argue that means they share the same nature, essence, being. But then, if we push that so hard... How do, you, how do you maintain distinctions between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Are there distinctions between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible, the Bible seems to indicate that, seems to teach that, right? But how is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit distinct from one another if they share the same divine nature, essence, or being? How, how do you make the distinctions? What they do. All right, so let me push back on that. I think you're right. I think you're right. Based on what they do in redemptive history, I'm assuming, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What about an eternity past? See, you're, you're talking about ad extra. I'm not saying that sounds literally that 
Yeah. That you were, you were going to say, I'm only talking about add extra. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, is the Son omnipotent? And the Father is omnipotent? How are they different? I mean, this is, this is hard. Like, this is, Muslims are going to tell you that, like, you believe in polytheism. There's only one God. You believe in polytheism. What was, Nicaea, Nicaea has already answered the question for us. How, how, do, how do we distinguish between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How do you distinguish Christians? Okay, so in, a, in eternity past, when you didn't see functions in creation... Drew, Drew, Drew's trying to, Drew, Pastor Drew's trying to tell you. I mean, I, I wrote the answer on the board, people. Personal relations. How, so, what is the distinguish, what's the, what's, what's the distinction? What's the distinction? This is, this is really hard. This is really hard. I will say, I will say that these truths that we're talking about, like, like Puritan farmers, could articulate them, right? What? Uh, so, okay, all right, hey, so I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to push you. I'm trying to push you. Oh, okay, all right, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is, the, here, here's some of, here's some, okay, everybody stop talking. Everybody stop talking. This is how some of you reflect Roman Catholicism a little more, bit more than you think. I'm not the priest and the laity. Y'all have got to know these truths. You are a royal priesthood. You are here to defend the gospel. Now, I am here to lead and to teach and to shepherd you. But, like, I want to teach these things so that, like, y'all know them firmly and can, like, have a solid defense when a Muslim comes up to you and you're sharing the gospel so that you can articulate, this is what the scriptures say and this is what the church has historically said. And it makes sense. So, I'm not the bastion of, of, of doctrinal knowledge, okay, just because I have a PhD. I, I want to pass on these things as much as possible. So, as we're talking about threeness, how do we make distinctions in threeness? In personal relations. So, what does that mean? How do you distinguish between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the Father is the Father, which means He's not the Son. What does it mean to be a father if you don't have a son? Right? So when, when Scripture talks about, this is my only begotten Son, that language there is, okay, begotten is described of the Son, not the Father. So the church at Nicaea is saying, okay, in terms of distinctions, because they share all the same divine nature. They're equally omnipotent. They share the same divine will. They have all of the same properties or essence or characteristics or attributes, however you want to describe it. How do we then make distinctions between them 
so that we can answer these heretics who are saying, well, you just believe in polytheism. You've been affected by Greek, by Greek thought with all their multiple, multiple pantheon of gods. So Nicaea would say, well, yeah. So the scriptures have revealed that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we talk, they said uh, in at Nicaea, we talk, we have the language of begotten. And eternal, um, I'm blanking, yeah, eternal, thank you, eternal procession. How, how, do, how do we describe the Father? Okay, so the Father is not the Son. That's the spirit. Eternal generation. I was like, it's not procession. The begotten son. Eternal generation. Generated from the father. Not generated in like created. Okay, we're just trying to use, we're trying to wrap our minds around biblical language. And these are just simply to make distinctions in the way that they relate to one another. Okay. So if the Son is begotten, the Father is unbegotten. Um, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, uh, verse 7, I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And that's then applied to the Son. So, begotten there does not describe creation. And it doesn't describe sexual intimacy, the, the result of sexual intimacy. It describes begotten. Again, we're, we're, taking, we're taking the words of Scripture to make distinctions between the three persons of the Trinity, without negating their oneness, without saying that there's only one God and one person. So, again, this is begotten. This is not in terms of action. This is ontology. Okay? This is the begotten Son who has been eternally generated from the Father. Okay. If you want to try it, do you mean so? Would you say begotten as in created? Because that's what the that's what that's what the Arians are saying, right? No, the I mean begotten can mean the product of sexual union, right? So, begotten, begotten. Eternal generation are communicating the same thing, okay? But these are, this is terminology, this is terminology that is helping us to understand how the Son is not the Father, 
Okay? So in Psalm 2, verse 7, when he says, You are my son, today I have begotten you, that means immediately, well, the father's not begotten. He's unbegotten. And the son, the son is begotten. Okay? So there is a distinction there. So we can say, well, the father and the son aren't, aren't the same. Because one is unbegotten, and the other one is begotten. Okay? Holy, Holy Spirit. Eternal procession. So, uh, John 14, the Son says, uh, the Father will send you the Spirit. And that's where Eastern Orthodoxy says, and that's it. The, the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the, from the Father. Well, but in Luke 24, Jesus then says, I'll send you the Spirit. And then John 15, it's, the Father and I will send the, send the Spirit to you. So it's proceeding, the eternal procession is the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Okay? This, so th- this, is what, this is what we're talking about. This is, these are theological terms used so that we can communicate biblical realities. Okay? So, with begotten, we, we, have to, we have to deal with the fact that in Psalm 2 and then in the Gospels, a voice from heaven says, this is my son, this is my only begotten son, listen to him. So, if, if we need to make a distinction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in order to affirm what the Bible clearly teaches, that they are all God, but they're one God, how do we make distinctions? Well, we can make distinctions based on function, what they've done in redemptive history. The Father sends the Son. The Son accomplishes our redemption. The Son, the Father and the Son send the Spirit to apply that redemption. But how does that describe their relations before creation? It doesn't. Right? And so, the, again, Nicaea is just trying to use language from Scripture to make distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to communicate threeness and oneness. I told you this is going to be hard. <laughs> I told you this is going to be hard. And Campbell's welcome. This is your first week. What a week to come. Threeness and oneness. Okay? No. No. It would be heresy. Nope. It's not an apple, it's not an egg, it's, nope. 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 Yes, exactly. The son wasn't created in a, in a Greek understanding. This, this begottenness has existed from eternity past. It is not a function in the midst of creation. Okay, so the father has the property 
or the characteristic or the, however you want to describe it, of paternity. That sets him apart from the son. The son does not have paternity. Why? Because he's the son. And, and the son does not have paternity, but the father, the father is not the begotten son. He's unbegotten. Okay? The spirit does not have paternity. He's not the father. And he's not begotten. He's not the begotten son. But Jesus does say, my father and I will send you the spirit. Yeah. So we have the, this understanding, and this is God revealing himself to us. So, I mean, we can laugh about it, but this is God's revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know that you're not asking that, so. You're processing. You're processing. Uh huh. Yes. 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 Right. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, like dimly. Yeah. Yeah, so again, he, here, here's the issue, okay? Put yourself in the fourth century, and a substantial portion of the, quote, church is arguing for Arianism. And another, if not the majority of, quote, the church, arguing for Arianism. And then there's a portion of the church that is saying, well, no, Jesus... Jesus was divine, the Arians are wrong, but he only appeared to be human. Okay, and we're holding to what we believe Scripture teaches, is that God is one, and he has existed eternally in three persons. So, if you can't make a distinction between the Father and the Son, which is what Nicaea is trying to do, if you can't make a distinction between the Father and Son, based on nature, how can you make distinctions? If you can't make distinctions, you have modalism. How are you going to make distinctions if there's oneness in nature? How are you going to make distinctions? Personal relations, which is why we get one nature Three persons. Right? So, we cannot describe the differences eternally between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in light of what they have done in creation. Because there was a really long time where time didn't exist prior to creation, and God has never not existed. And so they have always existed, 
How were they different from one another? How can you make a distinction if, they ha- if you can't use nature to make a difference between them? Well, no, the Son is uh, omnipresent, but, but He's not omnipotent. The Father is omnipotent. Well, no, no, that's clearly not taught in Scripture. So Nicaea is trying to figure out a way of saying, Father, Son are one in essence and being. That's clearly taught in the Scriptures. And so they come up with the word, usia, homoousia, versus homoousia. Same nature, same essence, same being. But then how do you fight against modalism? Personal relations, right? But then you've, you've got to make sure that if we're talking about God the Son that it's not understood in the same way that you talk about a father begetting a son in creation. Father begetting a son in creation is, is patterned after eternal begotting, but it's not the same. It's not the same. And so, <clears throat> this is really, really, really hard. Right? Hard stuff. Three persons, one nature. But the church is simply trying to say, This is how Scripture has made distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it seems as though the way in which there are distinctions prior to creation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is how they relate to one another at the level of person, personal relations. The Father has paternity. He's the Father. The Son, the Son is the only begotten Son of the Father. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The, the Spirit has eternally proceeded from the Father and the Son. That's how they relate to one another. At the level of person. And so, with person, this is answering the question, who? Not what? Nature is saying what? Person is saying who? This is going to become really, really, really important when we're starting to talk about Christology. Who is the person of the Son? Who is Christ? Who do you say that I am? I've gone into heresy and I've come back. Yes. Beyond how the relationships have been revealed. Because at, again, what, what's our warrant for knowing and understanding? Revelation. So you can't go further down. You can't go further down than Scripture. So when you say, how, do, how, how is the Father different from the Son? Well, He has paternity. The Son is begotten of the Father. Well, how do you know that? Scripture has said it. The church has gone into a lot more detail, and I'm not going into any more detail than this tonight. There's a lot more pressing in. Okay, we could do. Exactly. And it describes personal relations not nature or activities 
Yes, exactly. Again, Nicaea is trying to take clear biblical concepts and apply terminology that we can then use in conversation to describe these biblical truths. So we know that the Bible teaches that there is a distinction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when somebody asks you, well, how is that not just three gods? Well, you say they share one divine nature. They share the same whatness, the same essence or being. Well, how is that, how is that not just one God? How is that not just one God, one person, and you get modalism? Because there have been distinctions at the personal level for all of eternity. And so Nicaea, all our early church fathers have been doing, have done so much work for us so that we can stand upon their shoulders, not in a temple kind of way, not in a temple kind of way, but in an epistemological kind of way, and keep moving forward so that we can rightly understand the God that we proclaim. Okay, so there are distinctions and personal relations. That's how we get the threeness. But the oneness we talk about at the nature level, we also can understand oneness in terms of how they operate. Okay, and that's, I've mentioned it many, many times in sermons and in discipleship classes, inseparable operations. The Father through the Son by the Spirit. The Father sends the Son. The Son is sent in obedience and goes and accomplishes the atonement in obedience to the Father. He's raised by the Spirit. And then the Son applies or gives the Spirit with the Father. And the Spirit applies all of the work of the Son to our lives. In all of that... They are working inseparably with perfect unity at every step. And that's going to be really important as we start talking about the atonement. So inseparable operations helps us to maintain distinctions and oneness. Okay, but the big thing I want you to understand with this oneness and threeness is that at Nicaea, The early church, early church said, with regard to oneness, that's nature. That's the what. That's inseparable operations. That is one God. Deuteronomy 6. But then they also express the clear biblical teaching that there is threeness. There is threeness. And how how can there be three if they share oneness at the nature level? So Nicaea says it's person or personal relations. I mean, to a degree, it's like, okay, I'm a husband to my wife. Okay, what does that mean? Press it further. That, that, that's, that's it. I am husband to my wife. We can talk about like the details of the relationship, okay? But at the end of the day, I am husband 
Elise's wife. That's the distinction in part between us and our marriage at the level of personal relations. Okay? So the church is trying to articulate these realities, these biblical realities, to, to affirm that we serve a triune God who is both one and three. And so at the person level, that answers the question, who? And it also speaks to inseparable operations. They operate together. But it's one God, three distinct persons. And so at Nicaea, that, that's where we get Orthodox Trinitarian theology. Done for us. So, somebody read the Nicene Creed. Anybody, anybody who's willing to read it. I don't have a copy, otherwise I'd read it. Is this on? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Oh. Personal relations distinction, right? Only begotten. Begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one... Okay, there's the distinction. Chandler, you were asking, what does that mean? It means begotten, not made. That's that's the Nicene Creed's answer. No, they said not made. They're telling you what it's not. Hey, Chandler, at the end of the day, it's like, you can't go, you can't go further than Revelation. You can't, go, you can't go further than Revelation. In the new creation, you can ask the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what is, what is it, the begotten, what does that mean if he is not made? And then you'll have a mind to understand it. Maybe. Maybe. He, he, he is still God. He's still very God, very God. Continue. Being of one substance with the Father, by whom all one things... One substance. Substantia. Nature. Essence. Being. Continue. By whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried... And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. 
I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So, I hope you heard in there a lot of the language that, that we've been talking about and what they're trying to communicate, basically. God is three, God is one. How can that exist? How can we make that clear with human language? And so that's where we get nature, substance, essence, oneness, and then we have uh, hypostasis or persona, person, distinctions there. And I <clears throat> meant, to, meant to communicate that in this threeness, right, there are inseparable operations. There are three people that are working together perfectly in unity because of oneness. But we can have operations. We know this, but this, it, we're just going to say it out loud. There are certain operations that are going to terminate on a particular person. So what I mean by that is that it's the incarnate son, not the incarnate father. Okay? The father sins. The son goes. Right? So there are operations that will terminate on persons, but they are working inseparably in those operations. Does that make sense? To the degree that it can. Yes, and we'll talk about that in Work of Christ. Yeah, Steve, Steve Chalky, uh, cosmic child abuse is penal substitution. Yep. Bad deal, bad deal. All right, so if we understand that what Nicaea is trying to do with these words of person and nature, they're making really, really important distinctions that if we don't make these distinctions and we hold to something else, we're going to hold to a God that's not in the Bible. We're going to be holding to heresy rather than to orthodoxy. And so they're using language to communicate oneness and threeness, nature and person, that is then going to carry over into Chalcedon when there are all kinds of heresies as it relates to the person of Christ specifically. How do you have one person and two natures? Why don't you have two persons, two natures? Is it a blended nature? Is it adoptionism? Like, this is what Chalcedon's going to attempt to answer, but because we are all standing on the shoulders of those who come before us, Chandler, they are building upon Ni Nicaea. And Nicaea, Nicaea is only addressing father and son, Constantinople, about 60 years later, they're, they're bringing in the Spirit, so the portion of, that you brought, you, you read from the, about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit at the end, like that's constant, the First Council of Constantinople, 381, I think. Uh, and then we have 451, 126 years after Nicaea, we have Chalcedon, and there are at least seven or eight Christological heresies that are present in the church. That the church is going to have that church has to respond to, and so <clears throat> we'll we'll leave we'll leave it with this. And I'm trying to remember. Uh, let's see. All right. So Chalcedon 451. That's number four. Okay. 
we are going to we're going to land here and we'll we'll press into this at the beginning of next week and then move into the uh, the reformers but these these are theological and philosophical categories that the church is creating so that we can understand Christ so that we can understand the God who said, let there be light. And yet the author of Hebrews say, says, like, the, the Son is the sustainer of the universe. And Colossians 1 says he's, he is by whom and through whom all things were created. How do we balance all of these things? The church is trying to communicate with this extra-biblical language, which is not bad. Extra-biblical language, oneness and threeness. And so this nature, person, terminology is setting the stage for Chalcedon so that we can then begin to understand there is one person, the, divine, the eternal divine Son, who has taken upon himself a human nature. What does that mean? Is it blended? Is it just a soul? Is it just a body? Um, we're going we're gonna to get into that next week. I don't want to overload. Um, all right, so next week we will look at Chalcedon. We'll look at the heresies of Chalcedon and the church's response to them in the Chalcedonian Creed. And then we will move from there to later councils that argue over, does, does Jesus have one will or two wills? Uh, what about the Lord's Supper? Roman Catholicism has said that it becomes the very body and blood of Christ. Lutherans are like, no, that's wrong. It's the, the Son is over and under the, the elements, the, accident, the accidents of the Lord's Supper. And Calvin and the rest of the Reformers are going to say, absolutely not. That produces major issues with the person of Christ. How can a human body be everywhere the Lord's Supper is done simultaneously. And at some point, his body's going to run out, right? Like of people eating it. So there seems to be a blending there. All kinds of things that are coming up. And we talked about canonic theory. Jesus gave up his divine attributes while he was incarnate. Like those are more recent issues. We're going we're gonna to jump into that next week. All right. Any any questions that don't keep us here for 30 minutes, Chandler? If you, if you, tell, if you say, what, is it, what does it mean, begotten? I'm just going to say, begotten, not made.
you're trying to grapple with biblical rea- truths and realities. You have you have knowledge that is dependent upon God's knowledge, and you don't have all of God's knowledge, and you never will. And you don't have a comparison, and your language is limited, and you are finite, and you are trying to describe an infinite God. So, yeah, begotten, not made. Like, that's the distinction. That's clearly what Scripture is teaching, and if we want to press beyond that, there are people in the church who are, who are trying to make more, more distinctions, but again, the more you press into it, the more danger there is for you becoming a heretic. Yes. 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 Right. Trying to maintain their one, as the Bible clearly teaches, there's one God, and yet Jesus is the risen and exalted Lord who is omnipotent, and that is something that he shares with the Father, and they're not two separate gods. Yep, yep. I, it's hard, hard stuff. Hard, hard stuff. But this is going to lay a foundation again for understanding Christ. One person, two natures. There are going to be a lot of heresies that we look at that you are going to understand why they're thinking the way that they're thinking. And yet they're still heresies. All right, any, any, other, any other questions? Yes. I'm trying to remember in the Gospels. Is that the baptism? I mean, so th- there's a sense in which it's, it's saying today, uh, you are my son, today I've begotten you, and that's a Davidic psalm. And so David is the son of God in that sense. Uh, and so David has a beginning. But there's also a sense which, next week, Chalcedon, there is a today for a human nature. But there's not a today for the, the eternal divine son. There is, a, there is a real sense in which there is a today for Jesus the man. Right, because he's a creature, right? Like his human nature is created. But who is the active subject? Of that human nature, the uncreated Son. Yes. Jesus said He has always been with the Father.
No, that's what, that's what the Arians would say. That's what the Arians were saying. Today I have begotten you. Clearly he has a beginning. And Nicaea would say, yes. And Chalcedon would say, and let's, let me tell you how. That's true. Come back next week, and we'll continue to work on not being heretics. Working on it. Working on it. Yes. Yes, so, I mean, again, two natures, essence, what, of something, substance of something, the incarnate Son, there is an aspect of this being or substance, essence, that has a beginning today. And it's important that it's today I've begotten you because he's talking to the Davidic king. Right? But I've begotten you, and yet there's another nature, essence, being, which is eternal begotten. Eternally begotten. And we're going to talk about that next week in Chalcedon 451. Okay. I'm sure much, much of the confusion has a lot to do with my, ins my insufficient teaching, but we will continue to work through it uh, next week so that we can finish up the person of Christ and then we can turn to understanding, okay, now that we know who he is, let's look at what he's done. And we'll finish up with the uh, five, six weeks on the work of Christ. But next week should be the last week of person of Christ. And by, I, I, just honestly, this is by far the hardest aspects of understanding the doctrine of Christ. We're all here still. No one, has, no one has left the Lord, at least not yet. Person is who, nature is what. Next week we'll talk even more about person is active, active subject, not nature. We'll talk about that. Uh, I am also looking forward to it.